Since the pandemic, the act of coming together to connect with family, in making change happen, or simply to experience a live event has never felt more important. My name is Sarah Wishart, and I'm a filmmaker and writer. I've also worked for a very long time in the education and charity sector in the UK. Most recently, I've been working on co-production film projects where affected communities are the people to talk about the issues that impact them. I've talked to a lot of people over the last few years about ideas around connection, co-production and change, and I wanted to start capturing some of those conversations in a podcast. This is that podcast, and it's called The Assembling. I'll be talking to a range of people around their thoughts and experience of change-making, community, temporary or otherwise, of the importance of connection, basically about the moments of coming together around events like friendship, protest, activism, or even death. For our pilot episode, I talked to the incredible Martha Awajobi. Martha is chief exec of JMB Consulting and curator of hashtag BAME Online. They dream of a world free of oppression and are working towards that dream alongside their incredible collaborators all over the world. We started off talking about Martha's anti-racism work in the charity sector in the UK, but ended up bouncing off a lot of ideas, including thinking about activism as radical love, romance and friendship, and issues of consent in the idea of community. How are you doing? I'm okay. I haven't started speaking yet for the day, so I just need to practice. (laughs) first time I met you, I think, was at around our Black Lives Matter takeover when I was still at each other and me and Eric didn't really want to do a response like a lot of charities had been doing. We wanted it to be meaningful and so we set up a month where we got experts from different areas to talk and you talked about, I think, charities and the third sector and what was happening and that was really great content and it's still on the each other website. It's been a while since we talked. I'm now setting up this perspective on coming together to sort of sit alongside my co-production work. Co-production is something I'm really interested in and looking at community and things like that. And I can talk about that a little bit in a, in a while, but I want to find out what you've been up to since we last spoke. Oh, so much. I'm almost kind of like, what have I been doing? Life feels exactly the same as it did three years ago. And I remember when we met at the Each Other Black Lives Matter takeover, and I thought that was so cool. I had such bad imposter syndrome because I was like, oh my gosh, Kende Andrews. Oh my gosh, Gracie Bradley. Oh my gosh, Ife Thompson. What can I bring to the table? And it's been really cool, actually, because all three of them I've worked with or like got to know in different capacities since, um, which, yeah, was, was really, really great. But since then, what have I been up to? Um, so obviously I was kind of in the process of launching my business when we met. So this must have been what, the summer of 2020. At that time, it was just me and my laptop, uh, JMB Consulting. Um, and I was just doing the BAME Online fundraising conference, the first one. So three years later, there's now six of us in my team, which is really oh. quite Yeah, but there's six of us. We are doing all kinds of things in my organization. So we kind of started, it started as a fundraising consultancy, but that only lasted for about five minutes because the sector had a lot of other plans for me. We're now about to do our fourth BAME Online fundraising conference, which feels quite surreal, actually. Feels like I've only just done the first one, only just kind of processing being known in the sector, you know. 
And more than that, I think something I'm really kind of enjoying that's growing is kind of working out what BAME Online as an entity is going to be and working with my colleague Khadija to kind of build it into a home for anti-racist learning in the charity sector. So I'm kind of seeing it as like there's something between like a library and a media center with a YouTube channel, articles, journalism, art, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, an alternative, not a competitor, uh, an alternative to something like civil society and third sector where the focus is really on anti-racist learning, connecting the history of imperialism and present imperialism with how the logics of the charity sector function. So all of that is kind of come out of me understanding from working, you know, doing training, workshops, one-to-ones, endless kind of consulting with organizations around anti-racist practice and understanding that people don't even have the basics down. I think people have got used to using a lot of words, saying words like anti-racism, decolonization, intersectionality. But when you start asking a few more questions, you realize that every single time they pretty much mean diversity. Um, but are getting, you know, used to using, you know, terminology that's a little bit more complex, but still continuing doing exactly the same kind of material things. And I think for me, I'm trying, I'm, I'm begging and pleading with the sector, like through my work to be like, just say what you mean. Just say what you're doing. Don't kind of cloak this in fancy terminology because it's, you know, it's, I think it's a display of power. And also it's really confusing for everybody um, involved. And I think makes it quite unsafe for people of color who might go to an organization and be like, oh, they're talking about decolonization work. Um, when actually they're just saying the word decolonization so that they can get funding from funders who are just saying the word decolonization uh, or just saying the word intersectionality without any kind of practice or theory <laughs> underpinning it whatsoever. So yes, for me, BAME Online is a place for people to learn and for people to learn about themselves in relationship to white supremacy, to learn about the history of the charity sector, the history of kind of radical struggle so that we can learn from that history rather than repeat it over and over and over again. Other things that I'm doing, a lot of chilling. I'm just chilling a lot, trying my best to, you know, live the ethos of rest. It comes with a lot of guilt. So I'm kind of processing the guilt that comes with resting, but feeling the benefits because I work a lot less than I've ever worked before. Yet my output is enormous, actually. Um, and I feel like the more I rest, the more brilliant I become. And it's just focusing on that and leaning into that rather than feeling guilty that I'm not like sacrificing every single second of my life and every thought that I have to capitalism. So yeah, that's where I'm at <laughs> in a roundabout way. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. I've got some questions, but like, there's a whole bunch of stuff there that I want to lean into. So the very first thing I want to pick up is that you said you started as fundraising consultancy and then realized that wasn't where it was at. Was that super immediate or you just weren't getting kind of those questions or that you know it would all, it immediately kind of like gone in a particular direction which you haven't foreseen um good question I mean for me it started as a fundraising consultancy because I put myself in a box like I had been a fundraiser from the age of 18 up until I lost my job um in COVID right and I didn't know anything else and actually I got kind of really boxed into the idea that okay this is what I know how to do this is the only thing that I have to offer the charity sector. And I feel really grateful, actually, that 
it felt like the sector, like I keep saying the sector, like it's this amorphous thing, but it, it is in this case. People in the charity sector who were interested in working with me were interested in taking a chance on, you know, my way of talking about race and racism and my way of kind of understanding what I think a charity's purpose is. So what kind of happened was I set up this fundraising consultancy. I was having conversations with um, a few organizations. I got this amazing contract that I'm still, it's been renewed over the past few years with a, a funder called Unbound Philanthropy. And they pay me to deliver a certain amount of days of fundraising consultancy to smaller organizations, usually ones that are working in and around asylum seeking issues and, you know, refugee uh, rights, right? So I was kind of introduced to my favorite organization, Glitch, through them. Glitch is trying to change the world um, around the experience of Black people, particularly Black women, uh, trans people and non-binary people who experience online abuse. So challenging tech companies, challenging governments, really, really exciting headed up by Shay Akiwewo, who I think is really brilliant. Yeah, so, so I was kind of doing a little bit of fundraising consultancy, but then my one of my first gigs as a consultant was curating BAME Online, the first kind of conference for people of colour in the charity sector to really understand what it means to create diverse, transformative fundraising strategies, right? Particularly thinking about what that means from a racial justice perspective. So I was commissioned by fundraising everywhere to curate this conference um, in 2020. This must have been around like May or June time. So I, I just launched my consultancy on the 1st of May. So by the end of May, I'm curating this conference. I've never done this before. And I was just like, oh my God. But the way I, you know, speaking of kind of co-production, the way I went about curating this conference was I went to speak to loads of, you know, leaders who were in smaller black and brown led organizations, I spoke to loads of fundraisers who were people of colour and so asked them what they wanted from a conference that really represented what they were interested in, that kind of spoke to some of the challenges that they experienced, that kind of decentered whiteness for once, and they were a lot more interested in a conversation about institutional racism. You know, at this time, George Floyd had been murdered, Black Lives Matter had kind of, you know, made a resurgence. The charity sector was being kind of really challenged by organizations like Charity So White, like the Racial Equity Index, like, you know, resourcing racial justice. All of these things were kind of springing up. And I think it was the perfect time for people to come together um, to learn, to kind of celebrate the facts that change felt like it was on the horizon, to mourn. People of colour in the UK were disproportionately dying from COVID at the time. There was a lot going on, you know, and it actually became like, a space that was so beyond what I had envisioned for it, what fundraising everywhere had envisioned for it, because like we needed it rather than just like wanting it. We like needed this place to kind of heal, grieve, celebrate, et cetera, et cetera. So made this conference, 6,000 people bought tickets, um, which was wild. Um, I know. Um, I was like, it would be great if we could get 200 people to go. <laughs> Thousand. Yeah, yeah, because we did we bought or we did like organizational tickets as well. So large organizations were like booking places for their entire staff team. Like it was really, really cool. And my co-host is from the British Red Cross. So they brought all of their team, like their entire staff team. And I guess like that, I mean it changed my life pretty much. Like I was nobody and then suddenly everyone knew who I was, right? Like not like I was nobody, like obviously I'm somebody I was important before. <laughs> but Nobody knew who I was, then lots of people knew who I was. And lots of people 
came to the space expecting to feel drained and expecting to feel like, okay, this is really important, but it's going to be really exhausting. And actually people felt energized. They felt excited. Like they might've been crying, but it was crying from like joy. I was crying. Like I was crying for so much of the conference. Like it was just such a big kind of emotional moment. So I think some, you know, some leaders were like, oh, actually this person is able to talk to us about race in a way that makes us feel inspired, in a way that makes us feel excited, in a way that makes it feel relevant to us. We want to work with them. So just started getting booked to do like anti-racism training. I've never done it before. And, you know, it was kind of cool. Like I'm not a trained trainer. So like really just like pulling together lots of bits of my personality to kind of share with, with my clients. Started being asked to find like leaders who are people of color for organizations like Comic Relief, Stonewall, to help them with their recruitment processes. And it was just like, people would just say, hey, we have this problem. Do you think you can fix it? And I would say, I have no experience fixing this problem in this way, but I think I could. If you're willing to take a chance and experiment with me, then let's work together, knowing that we might not get the outcome that we want, but we're probably going to have a good time. And that's kind of how I was, you know, bringing in clients and growing my business trying things out, working out what we liked, what we didn't like. Eventually we stopped doing recruitment because I was like, I'm not sure that I'm bringing people of color into safe environments. But yeah, so yeah, it, it was just, I, I mean, I didn't have a business plan. I was just like, I don't have a job, so I need to do something. <laughs> so, and then, you know, two and a half years later, I wrote my strategy for my organization and it's become, yeah, a place where people come to learn and have fun at the same time. Like we put the fun back into anti-racism. Uh, <laughs> and so you've got a conference coming up. Yes. So the next one is on July the 27th, which is quite soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Um, it's been great having a team working on it alongside me. I normally get really tired while I'm doing it, but it's been really, really wonderful. This year, we are asking the question, can the revolution be funded? It is, I guess, a response to the provocations from Insight, who wrote the revolution will not be funded in, I think, 2007. I keep saying 2007, and I'm not quite sure whether it's 2007. And rather than being kind of definitive, the revolution will not be funded. I'm like, well, can it be? Um, and if it can be, how? And if it is going to be, do we need to rethink what we mean by funding? And do we need to think about resourcing instead? Or maybe I would, you know, maybe Insight were right all along, right? But I'm just really curious to kind of see what the UK thinks about this and to, yeah, to, to make it more of a, of a curiosity rather than a kind of like blanket statement. No offence to Insight. I love their work. <laughs> Not like they're going to be listening to, to me right now. <laughs> Um, and there's two tracks. One is about funding. The other is about the revolution. We're going to be talking about oppression Olympics. We're going to be talking about reclaiming anti-racism from kind of the jaws of equality, diversity and inclusion. We'll be talking about revolutionary love, radical imagination, black feminist funding. This is a very black feminist version of BAME Online. As I've been kind of curating and I'm looking for my, you know, speakers that I think will really elevate the conversations and make it kind of more urgent, yet at the same time, more thoughtful and measured and considered and joyful. It is Black women who, you know, are really doing this work and doing it really, really well. So a lot of the speakers this year are Black women, more than we usually have. And I'm really excited for that. I also know that people will have a lot to say, uh, but... I'm going to be kind of talking about why black feminism is this kind of thread that runs through the whole conference as we go through. 
and I'm really excited like as a black feminist myself like it's nice to be able to I don't know like yeah come through for my people <laughs> in many ways yeah and um I've got to ask are there going to be any funders there speaking about these yes yes yeah yes yes they usually are funders we've got one session that is just about the black feminist funders so we have black feminist fund obviously decolonizing wealth and project Talawa from the UK um who are all going to be speaking about kind of why black feminist frameworks are so important when we're thinking about funding and when we're thinking about kind of reparative justice um I'm just trying to think of who else we'll have. We're going to have somebody who works at Blaygrave Foundation and they're called Blaygrave Trust. Um, I'm looking for the speakers list now. Um, <laughs> there are, I mean, usually we do have a, have a few funders, which is really, really great. Mm. Um, I think what I find quite interesting is, even though this is a conference that is really kind of focused around funding and how money moves, it is never really the funders who show up, right? Um, yeah, that's why I, I kind know. of asked. Do you know what I mean? But they're like, sins. Um, but we get as time's gone on and we've built a more and more of a reputation, more and more funders are coming through. Like this year, we're sponsored by Joseph Roundtree, um, which is, yeah, it's cool. I'm just like, and actually also by Cora Foundation. Um, Cora Foundation are based in Scotland. Yeah, um, I've had something to do with them with uh, with the documentary. They've kind of like got groups that have been screening it in different kind of like yeah. places. They're really cool. Like yeah. there is someone there who has been really supportive of our work and has just been kind of like quietly pushing through the agenda through Cora Foundation for a really long time. Um, so they're also a sponsor and they were a sponsor last year. And I think that that's kind of helping more kind of funders see the value in it. We do have funders come as individuals. We don't have funders actually tell a lie. I, I'm making stuff up. Last year we had like impact on urban health come and like bring quite a few of their staff. But what I think is quite interesting is, does it really matter if funders are there? Because when we think about how change has been won, it's not by the people who are holding the seat of power. Yeah. It's by those who may have been felt as though they were powerless, those who are in the grassroots, those who are, you know, not visible when we're talking about kind of what the sex you know the kind of identity of the sector which is pretty much you know middle class white women it is the people who have the most to lose who who topple oppressive systems and it's about them coming together and demanding better and taking power so as much as i'm like ah funders aren't coming so what you know yeah. actually this is about us this is about us kind of taking back our own power but, you know, they, they do come, like, not in droves, but I haven't necessarily had, like, a strategy for, like, getting all the funders there. This year, I thought about having a strategy, but suddenly we're two months before the conference. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, well, maybe next year. But, yeah, it's definitely been really interesting seeing kind of the shift in who comes. We have a lot of organisations kind of buy bulk tickets for their staff teams. There's actually quite a lot of international development organisations, which is something I find quite interesting always stay away from international development I've never worked in international development I don't even like critique it too much because I don't know the mechanism so well but I work with two people that do 
and actually the work that kind of John Cornejo has done for us and the work that Khadija Diskin does, John does kind of the more practical like workshoppy, helping people to transform their organizations and Khadija does the very kind of understanding imperialism and understanding international development as a part of imperialism. So yeah, we get we get large, large international development organizations do like to come, um, which yeah, is a bit of a surprise to me. Um, so if you are listening, we sell organizational tickets. It's yeah, a sliding people, scale. Where can people find out about this? Uh, they can find out um, on JMB Consulting's website, on Fundraising Everywhere's website, or Everywhere Plus's website. Everywhere Plus is our sponsor. They've been our sponsor for the last four years. They run the tech in the background um, and make it into a really kind of luxurious and cool experience. Because otherwise, it would just be with me on Zoom being like, everybody, make sure you're muted. <laughs> so, <laughs> They can also kind of check it, check out our Twitter. We have a BAME online Twitter. We also have a BAME online Instagram. I'm not really on Instagram, um, so you'll have to see for yourself on that one. And yeah, just like anywhere where like cool stuff is happening in the charity sector, people will know about BAME. All the links available when this comes out. This is, yeah, my new thing, really. I'm, uh, I've gone freelance after being made redundant earlier this year, and um, I'm looking at doing a lot of stuff around co-production, and I'm therefore really interested in expanding and thinking about working together, people coming together to make a difference, coming together to create something, build community, I guess. So um, the new website will be www.theassembling.co.uk. This kind of focus offers uh, an opportunity to talk about activism, talk about community, and it's a good wide remit. I'm kind of interested in the whole good trouble, necessary trouble quote from John Lewis. Okay, good trouble, necessary trouble. It's not only okay, but necessary to enact and inspire meaningful change. So yeah, I want to sort of like think about that and uh, and community and if you've got any perspectives on it in relation to your work or anything really. Hmm. I'm a little bit for me is like, who gets to decide what's trouble? You know, I personally feel like I may be considered to be a troublemaker in the charity sector. Absolutely fine. Although I don't believe I've done anything particularly troubling. I have organized conferences. I have written position papers. I have <laughs> spoken <laughs> keynotes. What is this trouble that people are talking about? If anything, I think the shady stuff that goes on in our sector is the real trouble, right? So I guess I've I've never I've never reflected too much on on this phase, this phrase apart from in relation to my ADHD. Because when <laughs> I was at school, I was always known for not being like causing trouble, you know, being disruptive, let's say. Um, so I, I'm kind of disruptive by nature. And that is because I literally can't help it. <laughs> I just cannot help it. And it's quite funny, kind of the same things that were leveraged at me in school, disruptive, doesn't know when to shut up, just, you know, annoying, not annoying everyone, but like, Messing with the status quo is exactly what I should have been doing all, all along, right? Um, and I've kind of got to kind of feel vindicated. But school is so oppressive anyway. Mm -hmm. It's an oppressive place, you know. Um, I remember when I was um, a young, a young, must have been in year five or year six. I'm like 10 at this point. 
and I led a campaign to um, change the uniform regulation because I wanted to wear trousers because I wanted to do cartwheels. <laughs> I was like, I want to do cartwheels. All the boys are doing them. I don't want to show my knickers. Uh, I didn't realize that I was actually like having my first kind of foray into my relationship with my gender through this kind of prism of trousers. Uh, <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, I, I, I think I've, I've always been like, you know, a troublemaker, but I, I, don't, I don't really want to call it trouble because what I'm looking for is freedom and like liberation, you know? So I, yeah, it's, it's, but what I do, what I am inspired by, and people might not like this, but I'm inspired by like the Just Stop Oil stuff that's going on at the moment, like absolutely inspired by it. That I think is real trouble, like going out on the streets and doing kind of, you know, not just kind of protests, but direct action. That I think is the coolest shit, right? I'm, I'm a wimp. I'm afraid like people might think that I'm like a badass or whatever but I'm afraid to do that like even I'm too scared to go outside of the frameworks that have been offered to me for my sins you know I sometimes feel a bit like yeah embarrassed that like I still use the master's tools and um, I still use the terrain uh that's been kind of given to us maybe I might kind of like tinker with it a little bit make it accessible to everybody take it away from being behind a paywall but yeah, I think the people who are going out there, like putting their like bodies online, mm-hmm. like, are some of the coolest people out there. Like, and and I don't really have the excuse of like, oh, if I get arrested, like, so like that's gonna ruin my life. It's not. I run my own business. Like, it's, it's actually not. Um, because I don't no, really. No, know. No, I hear you. Like, it's like <laughs> you know that sort of. I, I mean, I like the the contrast of the two words necessary trouble, right? That there's no that you have to do something. That the the situation is such that you've got no choice. That you're you know compelled to do something. And I think that's really interesting. And I also have been somebody who's. I think I've been known in some of the charities I've worked for as a naysayer because I question and I say, well, why are we doing this project? And you know, why are we taking that money? Or why are we going down that direction? Um, and I agree with you. I'm also a very nervous sort of protester. I get very panicky about. And so I'm really, I agree with you. I'm really envious of people who like wade in. And I think that what they do is incredible. I've seen footage this week of like, just stop the oil and being a, people walking in the street, being attacked by members of the public. Do you know what I mean? And the police. Yeah. Like, um, and but but that it does afford change, you know. It's like I watched the documentary recently about the um, the anti opioid um, protests, like led by um, Nan Golding, um, protesting against the Sackler family, and that mm. those protests, the same sort of thing, being at the Tate, being kind of like in these different places, trying to get our um, institutions to stop being funded by by the, by this family, you know, that came off. They 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 yeah, they have yeah. stopped. So you know. I think it gets dangerous when they do, you know, impact kind of like change like that. I think I think that's mm-hmm. when they start looking really. And it's been interesting that those kind of um, interactions have got a lot of press recently. Like, you know, they're really trying to push the this is really out of order and these people are really, you know, should be arrested. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when and when we look back on this in the future, we've still got the same messed up media system that we have. They will come. They will talk about how these organisations created change, but they won't talk about how they disrupted traffic, how they were an absolute like nuisance, how they were like throwing. <laughs> Luckily, like everything's recorded now, and like 
even the work of like Palestine action, like mm-hmm. that are like doing these kinds of like stunts that are literally stopping weapons from being <laughs> from being able to kind of you know be traded. I think it's just like so so incredible. But again, it's that kind of like, and I get that people want to like claim words and be like, yes, like this is necessary trouble, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like for me, like that's revolutionary love. Like that is love in action, you know. And I don't really see it as trouble. That's why I kind of struggle with that kind of like terminology. I think that if we reframed kind of what people who are engaging in direct action are, they're they're loving us. They are loving the planet and they are putting themselves on the line so that we can have the future that we all deserve, right? I'm trying to bring love back into it, you know, and like a really like militant form of love, like a love that isn't like wishy-washy kumbaya nonsense, a love that is literally like, I guess like a life or death kind of <laughs> kind of thing, not to be dramatic, but. I really like that concept. I mean, it's what I say about love all the time. It's a verb. It's not what you say you're going to do. It's what you do, right? So yeah, I love that idea, militant love. That's, that, that's the action. A hundred percent. I keep coming back to Bell Hook's work and I feel like, yeah you're right kind of like love in action but I want to kind of like free love from like this embarrassingness and you know bring it make it cool again (laughs) and like I look at like the 70s and it was just like love 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 and like now even just like to say you love your friend is just like some there's something so cringe and corny about it and I think that's intentional as well you know so that we aren't able to form bonds of empathy and solidarity with each other that are rooted in love. We're much more comfortable talking about care and talking about community than we are talking about love. I don't know if it's because it's scary because of what it demands of us, because I think love demands of us to turn away from capitalism. I was just about to say that. I was talking to somebody recently about friendship, right? I really got a fascination about it. And they said, it's the only thing that can't be fiscally categorized or or the government has no capacity over friendship like marriage marriage is an institution and there's and there's laws around it and there's finance around it and there's it is still very much embedded within capitalism friendship not so much there's no legal aspect around it it's the one area where it's outside of things and as a result feels really kind of i don't know revolutionary in that space in being widely capable of different kinds of definition different kinds of ways of us thinking about it Mm, I really agree with that and I think the more I reflect on what it means to like be like to love and to like form relationships I always focus on my friendships because I'm just like those are the ones where we choose each other and we meet each other as equals in many ways you know yeah there's always going to be like structural advantage happening within friendship groups but I often you know kind of use my friendships as a way to like measure the other parts of my life like would I allow a friend to treat me like this would I show up for a friend like this would you know and I'm like wildly romantic with my friends like wildly (laughs) because (laughs) yeah like I'm literally like I will die for you (laughs) and they you know they, they they mean so much to me but they've also been the terrain on which I practice being a person like and I've like learned how to like love like properly um because you're right like there isn't so much kind of folklore or literature about like how to be a friend and how to be like the perfect friend and how to win a friendship and blah 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 blah. 
Um, and it is right, really, and I, I, I like, I have, there's two friends in particular that I'm, I'm thinking of, Chanel and Rajan, right, who were in this friendship group together, uh, WhatsApp group, Signal group now, because I'm paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we're all getting on signal. The governor's not listening to my conversations. <laughs> mm. But in the last like six or seven years with them, like we have all grown so much and like we have like given each other like permission to like force each other's growth in many ways. And I think I learned, I've learned how to communicate my boundaries through my friendship with them. Like I've learned how to ask for help through my friendship with them. I've learned how to... I guess I live with myself in many ways, right? And it's really interesting because I know you wanted to talk a little bit about community. And I think I got community wrong for a really long time about like what it what it was. I thought it was just like people that looked like me. Or maybe people who had like shared interests or people who, you know, have the same romantic or sexual orientation to me. And I had a conversation with my colleague Khadija. It was like, community is about consent. Like you consent to be in community with people, right? And I was like, <laughs> you know, it's a, like, it's a relationship of consent where we agree to show up for each other. You can't be in community with someone who hasn't agreed to be in community with you. And I think that took the pressure off so much because in 2020, we were like, right, the black community, like everyone's in community with each other. We all have to hold each other to account. And that's why you have like random people I've never met in my life telling me that, they, they want to hold me to account for some shit that's irrelevant to me a lot of the time, like on Twitter, et cetera, right? And ever since having that conversation with, with Khadija and really being like, oh, actually, like, the community that I have are my friends and the people that, like, I want to, you know, be, like, side by side with. Uh, when the revolution comes, if it does come, it is happening anyway. And it is the people that I'm side by side with, the people that I'm in tren the trenches with, like for want of, want of a better word. And actually like Bell Hooks and Chanel and Rajan have like showed me what it means to be in community and what it means to show up every single day, even when you don't feel like it, which is, you know, which I, I think has just been so freeing. Like, I don't feel like I have to be accountable to the entire, every single fucking queer black person in the world which is what I thought was the thing, <laughs> you know? That's, that's really interesting. I really yeah. love this because I, I think I'd thought that community was something external, something I entered into, something that was like exactly what you're saying, kind of like these groups that I was attached to in various kinds of ways. Whereas actually, if I think about it in terms of the people that I'm working with, the people that I'm, you know, choosing to be with, who are choosing to be with me and and I'm already there. I'm already present. I don't have to kind of go external to anything. 100%. It's a relationship of trust. Like, how can you enter into a relationship of trust if one of you doesn't know that you're in the relationship, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's made me so much more intentional and also so, like, much more re relational. And I think because capitalism and these you know white supremacy etc like breaks down these bonds of kind of relationality and like solidarity between us of course you would just think that any old person that you're standing near is in community with you because you're just two individuals part of this like wider like set of individuals but now I'm like okay so if I want to work with someone if I want to struggle with someone I've got to get to know them I have to make the effort I need to understand who they are like what we have in common like what is shared what their tactics are um how their tactics kind of complement my tactics what we have in common what we have that's different and that requires a lot of investment 
like that requires like getting to know somebody talking to them eating food together sharing each other's hopes and dreams getting romantic in many ways not in the way that people might be thinking I mean like you know in the cool like political way (laughs) (laughs) and yeah in many ways that's been absolutely freeing for me and it's taken away a lot of the kind of I think anxiety that I have that I'm not measuring up because I'm like who am I accountable to I'm not accountable to random people on Twitter I'm accountable to my community to the people who've said we are in this together and that's really really helped me to be like I know which direction I'm going in. I know who's got my back. I know what is expected of me from this group of people because we've agreed it together. And that is so much better than like feeling like you're on the kind of sacrificial altar mm-hmm. to like the court of public opinion. I don't give a fuck what people think. I care about what my community needs, right? And that's been a huge shift for me over the last like three years. And it's such a welcome change in perspective as well. So yeah, I say that's been the, the last six months have been like, that's the big like, aha moment That's for me. amazing. I love all this. I'm going to be, yeah, really thinking about it. I particularly like the idea that not just love is like something that you want to reclaim, but romance, like the, the concept of the romantic um, planning, futures, connection, like how we're supposed to communicate, what we're, what we're going to do better, you know, that that's romantic and it is. 100%. And I think that's been... And maybe it's just for me, like, I'm a bit, I'm a big, people might not know this about me, but, like, I'm super romantic, right? I'm, like, so romantic. Like, it's embarrassing. Like, I can't help it. Um, and, um, and when people talk about making, like, change and making, like, revolution irresistible, for, uh, for a big romantic, like, it's got to be romantic for me. Someone's work who I love is uh, Bolu Babalola, right, who like writes loads and talks about kind of like you know sitcoms and like romantic comedies and talks about them from a very kind of political perspective oh, wow, and it's I just like re- reclaiming that romance right and that we deserve that and I think because all these words romance love I wouldn't even say I wouldn't maybe say community but it's been kind of like you know shoved into the realms of embarrassment and we should be focusing on getting that money, having side hustles, all of that stuff that I don't like. It makes me want to vomit. Like I love love and I love her <laughs> romance. Like <laughs> so, so bringing bringing the things that I love into the things that like I need and what matters to me and like, that has been so important. And yeah, I I do think that um, anti racism and anti oppression is romantic. Like it is it, like you said, like building a beautiful future, yeah. right? Like and Audre Lord talks a lot, a lot about kind of the erotic in kind of this work. And I'm going to start thinking a little bit more because I'm only just talking this out loud. Like I don't normally talk about the romantic side of anti-racism. <laughs> but this is like really making me think about how do I kind of, you know, how do I articulate like these, these two things together? And why like I enjoy doing this work so much because it's hella romantic to me, you know? Yeah. That's incredible. That is really incredible because it is about building an amazing future. It is like that's otherwise why 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 I'm do doing it? it together, right? You know, doing it together. Like even talking about it, I'm like my heart is singing. Like, <laughs> people are learning a lot about me right now. <laughs> so 
um, who else do you think is doing well and good work in this sort of area that you're looking at and you're going, I want to work with them or you are already working with them? Um, I it's never the large organizations I'm very sorry large organizations are doing a terrible job uh, but smaller <laughs> ones smaller ones um, I mean I love the work of the Good Ancestor Movement so this is Stephanie Brobby's work and she has managed to somehow bridge the gap between some kind of like very like grassroots like transformative revolutionary frameworks and like private wealth um, she practices a private wealth lawyer um, and is now helping rich people get rid of their money, right? Doing that kind of through the lens of reparative justice. I love it. I oh absolutely God. love it, right? And it sits kind of alongside my work working with funders, and she does a lot of work with funders. But I really love how practical it is. Like she understands the private wealth system, you know, and the same with kind of decolonizing economics. Like they understand the private wealth system. Um, and instead of it being kind of a really aspirational reparations, kumbaya, et cetera, they're like, oh, no, these are the actual practical steps that you can take in order to get rid of your money, in order to kind of, you know, create. Yeah, I, I think her work is really, really cool. Uh, Healing Justice London, I really, really, really love. Um, Free Black University as well. I mean, there are so many organisations. So recently, I was saying earlier that I was, I've been working with smaller organisations through Unbound Philanthropy. There's a few that I've worked with. I'm just like, oh, wow. Like, if everybody could understand this, we would all be free. <laughs> like, so I've been working with Love and Power, who are kind of supporting to train feminist organisers, like, within their communities. Um, and Act Build Change doing kind of similar work, like, kind of training organisers. And I think, you know, that's the future. I love Civic Power Fund as well. I think they're really, really, really cool. Um, they're like one of the only funders that I'm just like, okay, like, they're all right. <laughs> um, recently, I've been working with my favorite organization, which is Migrants migrants in Culture. Yeah, they're so cool. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. my God. Um, I worked with them and Civic Power Fund together for this event. And it was just like the most magical day, you know, of just having these like very distinct groups of people come together. Something I'm, I love, I don't quite understand. And I think that's why I love it is the power that the arts has to transform political imagination. I went to university to study politics, right? So I'm very bookish about all of this shit. And like the written word, again, the tool of white supremacy, but like it's been very much drilled into my head that way. And I'm like jealous and kind of in awe of how the arts, you know, drawing, music, Poetry, all of that, like, has the power to, like, unlock revolutionary spirit in, like, everybody. So, like, working with migrants in culture and, like, the way they kind of dance around the unexplainable, they move. I, I can't even, ex I can't explain it because it can't <laughs> be explained by words, you know. I'm working at the moment. I mean, this is my background is, like, live art and performance and the capacity to be in space with bodies like physical bodies in a space like raising questions challenging audiences the impact that kind of work has I think is just fascinating I'm just doing some work for a, a live art festival in Glasgow called Take Me Somewhere and very exciting performances that are going to come out in the autumn so I hear you as to its power really 
Yeah, I mean, I'm always sneakily trying to get like closer to the arts. Like, I just think I'm creative, but like not in that kind of way. I'm going to send you invites to like all the amazing please do like stuff. Come and crash in Glasgow. I sit, I sit on the board of Complicity, right? Um, oh, yeah, I and... saw that. They were the reason yeah, for my yeah. performance. Like... I think they're so cool, like, obviously, because I'm on the board. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I, I, it's it's been it's been really, really great because it is like, I don't know, I feel like all of the big moments in my life when I've, like, truly enjoyed things and I've truly felt connected, there haven't been words involved, you know? It's the one that the one of the most kind of like transformative experiences for me, like it's so random, but I was a teenager and I went to go see the whirling dervishes or something like that. I literally had like a spiritual epiphany in silence. And like it was just like unforgettable. And it's those kinds of older ways of connecting, like old it's getting me going. I'm like, oh my ah. God. this is like all my favorite <laughs> things, friendship, activism, and performance. And oh, yeah. amazing. I'm gonna end every single one of these. Um, podcast with like what your favorite performance is so you've just set that ball in motion like you know I've um I go to the theater like all the time like there's one theater in Manchester the contact theater that I'm Mm -hmm. like at like Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I recently went to see the Coco Butter Club which is a, a cabaret show which is all people of color performance right and I saw this pole dancing performance that moved me to tears oh my god I've who would have thought, right? Who would have thought? I'm there crying, thinking, this person, I'm also at the back as well. And I was like, it's just me and her in this room. Like, and it was just like, I don't, I'd never, I'd never seen anything so like unexpectedly beautiful, right? And it's always in these moments where like, I'm not expecting to be like moved. I'm like truly like moved to tears. You know, the whirling dervishes, I was on a school trip. I was just like trying to be cool, you know, like buying fags and like secretly smoking them. And like teachers can't know that we're all drinking in our room. And next thing you know, I'm having this like spiritual experience that helped me reconnect with my mom. <laughs> you know, so and I don't know where I'm maybe it's like coming back to that romantic, yeah. you know, yeah. it is. Yeah, is and it's been really interesting, like coming back as an adult to basically all of these ways that we understand the world as a child and honoring what the child in me because I don't think I'm an adult I think I'm just a child trapped in this adult looking sack of flesh right (laughs) (laughs) and what it means to you know be a child it does come back to love joy and it's just been so nice finding my way back I feel like everybody loses their way like we're kind of forced to um, but I feel very fortunate. I've kind of just like found my way back home uh, to my seven-year-old self, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Oh, I love this idea. And what a great way to finish this off. I can't believe you've just, we've just talked about all my favourite things. like Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone wants to talk about it. We all want bloody love and romance. Like, let's stop pretending. Yeah. <laughs> stop like putting it in that bloody box over there yeah it doesn't have to be like you know the heterosexual version of love that results in marriage but like there is something about claiming love and you know romance on your own terms and I feel like yeah I'm getting it it's fun it's fun to talk about it I feel it's really fun to talk about it I love it thank you me too thank you thank you for allowing me to talk about my feelings (laughs) (laughs) I don't really allow you know just (laughs) here is the space
<laughs> Amazing. Well, I will like up at the conference and put all the kind of like details in. And um, yeah, when is it? Did you say the 27th of July? 27th of July at 12 p.m. But you don't have to be there on the day because if you buy a ticket, you'll have access to the content for 30 days after. Last year, we gave you access for 90 days because we're generous. So you might do the same again this year. Well, I will see if I'm available as well, actually. Like, I feel like you kind of need to come along and listen to all this. So We will be um, talking about love and romance. <laughs> You've got me started now. I can't stop. I'm literally like, I'm like I need to talk to somebody else about love now. <laughs> Have a great Friday. And you um, too. thank you for talking to me. And um, Thank yeah. you for having me on the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll speak to you soon. Take care, Martha. Thanks for listening to the latest episode from The Assembling. Keep up to date with us via the website www.theassembling.co.uk or follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Music was by Charles Ballas. Thanks for listening.